1: All right, my name is Rich Schmidt, I'm here with Corey Schuster. We're at Portland Wine Company. It's January 21st, 2020. Thank you so much for joining us today, appreciate this. Yeah, thanks for coming out. Uh, most important question, so we'll start with it, which is, why wine?
0: Why not wine? Um, why wine, that's a, that's a question with a bit of, not a, bit of a loaded answer. Um, I was never into wine. Uh, I drank wine, but never paid attention to what I was drinking, um, never studied it until 11 years ago. Um, I was actually a civil engineer for almost 10 years and worked in Denver, worked here for a while. Uh, when 2008 happened, You know the economy did its thing and uh, I like to now say I was given the chance to find something else to do. Um, so I ended up just kind of casting through Craigslist and um, basically, applied for any job that sounded interesting, because I didn't want to go back to engineering, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I figured, well, I'll try everything and see what sticks. So I had a bunch of weird random jobs, um, which was pretty fun. Fleshed out my resume a little bit, <laughs> made it more interesting. Uh, and then, I think it was 2009, uh, entered an ad from Arcane Sellers, and they called me up, um, for a phone interview and one of the first questions was you know what do you know about wine it's Like, well, I like to drink it uh, and apparently that was enough for for Jeff and he brought me in and ended up doing some work for them uh, in the tasting room doing events doing farmers markets um, and just kind of loved it I mean going from a cubicle to sitting in a tasting room or sitting in a vineyard was pretty great um, and it just kind of snowballed from there ended up getting a bunch of other jobs and like the industry, like the work, and left engineering far behind. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, so wine, it was never my intention to get into this. It was never anything that had even crossed my radar. Uh, most of my friends that are from my previous life think it's hysterical that I'm now a winemaker. Um, <laughs> so, that's pretty great. <laughs> um, so, before we, go on,
1: <clears throat> before we go on, I'm curious uh, what's the most random job you had in the time between?
0: Uh, Most random job probably was helping a friend. He'd started kind of the small business cleaning out foreclosed homes. Um, Very random, very depressing. Um, There's a lot of work doing that at the time. Uh, So that was very random, but I think the best random job I had was working for the Portland Parks and Rec. We were driving a mobile rock climbing wall all over town. So we would go to two parks a day with this, I think it was a 15-foot rock wall. Just set it up in the park, let kid come, kids come in, climb it for free, and, and hang out. It was awesome. <laughs>
1: That's cool. It was pretty great. So tell me your first impressions. You mentioned kind of liking it right away, being out of a cubicle. What were your mm-hmm. first impressions of the Oregon Wine District or, or of wine as an industry in general?
0: I mean, it was just very different from most of the jobs I'd ever had. Uh, you know, people were um, really excited about what they were doing. I mean, coming from. Engineering, where no offense to all my friends who are still engineers, uh, most of the people I knew they weren't passionate about it. They liked it enough, but it was never anything that they got super excited about most of the time. Uh, getting into this industry, people were just stoked, um, and just you know we're talking about wine all the time, just geeking out constantly. Um, so it was it was a fu- it was a more fun energy to be around, and it turns out I'm a social person, so I do better not sitting by myself behind a computer and yeah it was just a it was more of a lifestyle like engineering was supposedly a stable career that I could you know do for the rest of my life which turned out not to be true Um, but there was just an an energy to the wine industry that was um, just more exciting more fun so you came into it Enjoying wine as a product uh, yes. and not knowing
1: anything beyond that, and getting right. hired anyway. So tell me about the education process of learning the industry and learning
0: about wine. You know, from the you know from a sales tasting room event perspective, the the learning curve was pretty steep. Because uh, if you don't know what you're talking about, you feel stupid really quickly. Um, and you know, there are people out there that kind of make it a point to try to let you know how much you don't know from. You know from a consumer side so it was uh, the learning curve was steep um, so that was an incentive to to study to learn to take some classes uh, and just to spend more time going to different tastings and meeting people um, yeah steep learning curve but it was fun yeah you know, it was I, I've done school didn't really like school um, so this you know learning about wine which how do you learn about wine you drink wine talk to people that's way more fun than you know sitting in an office or sitting in a classroom Mm -hmm. and learning
1: how long till you felt comfortable talking to someone about wine and feeling knowledgeable
0: years I mean one of the great things about wine I think is that there's always something to learn you know from a from the consumer side from production you know there's always something to learn there's always something you don't know so, I mean, I think it took me a number of years to sort of get past, most of the time, be past that whole imposter syndrome. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it took a couple years be, before I was in a tasting room and felt comfortable, you know, being there by myself and not having somebody behind me that I could whisper a question to to get an answer. Um, yeah.
1: So you started at Arcane. And I you did. said you, you had a number of other kind of, t- t- sort of take us through your, your journey from from that point.
0: Um, so I worked at Arcane. Um, I did my first vintage at Owen Row uh, in 2010, worked for them, and I ended up working for Owen Row off and on for a couple of years, uh, did some tastings for them, worked in the lab, worked in the cellar, bottled, you know, kind of whatever they had available. Um, I worked at Penrash in the tasting room, um, worked at Raptor Ridge did a vintage, worked in the tasting room, uh, worked for a division winemaking company. Um, I'm trying to think, who else? You know, I, I did work for Matt with Love and & Squalor and Heliotera and Mahoney Vineyard did uh, sales for them for a while. And I'm sure there were some others in there. Uh, you know, when I got those first jobs and kind of fell in love with the industry, it was, it's gonna be sound cheesy, but you know, things just kind of fell in my lap. Things just really, they, it just worked well. Um, so it's, I didn't seem to be in a lack for opportunities to work. And I think those first couple of years in the industry, I did work almost every day of the year because things popped up. You know, I'm working full-time at one winery, but this other winery says, well, if you got a couple days available, you can work here. I'm like, sure, I don't need weekends. Um, you know, it's, Kind of the hustle of the industry that that everyone's doing. Um, so I think that's most of it. Yeah, and worked at um, Southeast Wine Collective. Um, was working in the bar over there. I think that's it. Was there a part to remember? Everything. <laughs>
1: was there a part of the industry that appealed to you more than others? Was there a, a, a piece of the of the industry that was the most appealing part?
0: I think I'm kind of lucky in that I like all of it. Uh, I I really like the production side you know I like the physicality of it I like getting dirty I like being wet um, which is you know again totally opposite of all my experiences as an engineer Um, but I also like the sales side I I like talking to people about wine I like I don't like cold cold calling that's never fun nobody likes that nobody likes that Um, but I don't mind the sales I I enjoy doing the sales which I I think is very helpful Um, Share side. I don't like the accounting side. So, tell
1: me about the process of uh, starting your own label. As it happened, happened pretty quickly in, in your in your journey. So, tell me it about didn't. that. Why, why why did you decide to make start making your own wine?
0: Um, you know, with that first vintage, you know, I had never had a product. Um, I had never had something that I could point to or hold and say, "I made this." this was my creation. Uh, so working those first couple of vintages, it was cool to tell my friends, I mean, I didn't make that, but I touched those grapes. Like I had a part of that. Uh, and that was, to me, that was really, it was a gratifying experience that I'd not had before. Uh, so when the Southeast Wine Collective opened and they brought me in to help run the, the wine bar, you know, I had wanted to dabble. I wanted to uh, try my hand and see, you know, can I do this? Am I any good at it? Am I gonna like taking this all on as my own thing? Uh, And given what that space was, you know, there were, I think, five other winemakers in there, so it felt like a good safety net to have. And since I was gonna be there all the time anyway, uh, with the production space and the bar in the same place, I'm like, well, if I'm gonna be here anyway, why not add a little work uh, and do a little bit more? So that first vintage was 2012 and I figured I'll bring in enough fruit to justify starting the label and starting a business, but not so much that if I suck at it or screw it up that I'm gonna go totally broke. Um, So I made 90 cases in 2012, so nothing. Um, Which at the time felt like a lot, but now in hindsight, it's like, "Ah, that was was not much of anything. Um, Plus, you know, I didn't know that much. Uh, You know, I worked with uh, Kate and Tom of Division, they were very supportive and were there to help me. You know, when I came across things I didn't know, and again, having all those other people in the space gave me that safety net for to help fill in all those gaps in my knowledge. Uh, fortunately, 2012 was probably the easiest vintage ever. Uh, the wines kind of made themselves, and it was a very consumer-friendly vintage very early on. Uh, thank goodness I didn't try to start in 2011. That would maybe would have been a different story. Um, so, I started really small. Uh, I didn't feel like I knew enough. I didn't, you know, imposter syndrome was intense. Um, but with that community, it was, it was, um, it allowed me to start. And then I just grew, grew really slowly from there. Um, I just finished Vintage 8 and I'm only at almost 2,000 cases. So, it's been a very slow growth. Uh, because, I mean, again, there's still so much I still don't know. So I didn't want to grow so big that, you know, I'm bringing in 2,000 cases worth of fruit and I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Um, I kind of know what I'm doing now. Um, so, yeah, it, it was, it, it, I started quick, um, but I started slowly, which made me feel less uncomfortable. You that makes sense? It
1: does. <clears throat> you mentioned imposter syndrome, and I, we, we hear that a lot from people who don't have a formal education mm-hmm. in wine and kind of did, did you feel how did how were you received by your winemaking peers? Was there any resentment there that you were doing this without having gone through the trials and tribulations? Don't
0: touch the microphone. Um so it's interesting. So one of the things that we really encouraged me early on was coming across winemakers that didn't have the formal education, was getting to know people that were Winemakers or GMs or like, the people making the calling all the shots that hadn't gone through the process of getting a degree, uh, I felt like there was, I came across a lot of people that supported that idea of learning by experience rather than getting a degree, then getting the experience. And again, you know, I got, I got an engineering degree, so I can do the school. I just don't really like it. And I learned better and I learned quicker by doing. Um, <laughs> So I felt like there was support for that approach. Um, I didn't, I mean, it, I tend to be pretty oblivious in life. So <laughs> if there was resentment, I didn't notice it. Um, yeah, so it, I think it, the imposter syndrome came more from me, not from the way anybody else uh, approached or treated me for what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there were people that were like, why is this guy starting a label, you know, after two years into his experience, fair. Um, I still wonder about that but you know having kind of that science background and again having that safety net of people around me made it made a little more sense to me Mm -hmm. Um, and I think given the space I was in and given the peer group that I've had it is a lot of people that are newer to the industry that maybe didn't go to school um, that you know may have started their business early on in their uh, career Mm -hmm. so that was supportive for me. Um, It didn't get rid of the imposter syndrome, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I didn't feel awkward around most people um, telling them what I was doing. I mean, I think it took me five years before I called myself a winemaker, if not more. I still have trouble calling myself that. It's like, I make wine, cool. Um, But yeah, I mean, the the people around me were very supportive of what I was doing, which if they hadn't been, maybe I would have called it quits, but um, I felt like I had that support. You mentioned 2012 being a good year to start. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Tell me about the first vintage. What did you learn? What were the mistakes you made? What what was it that you took away from that first vintage? Um, what
0: did I take away from that first vintage? Um, How was the wine also? I mean, it sold. <laughs> so, so it was good enough. Um, you know, I think the fruit, so, Kind of going back to the support I got, you know, with that first vintage, you know, I realized I wanted to buy some Cap Franc and some Pinot Noir, I, but I didn't feel like any vineyard was going to work with me to get give me half a ton of fruit because that's just kind of silly. Um, so I went to Owen Rowe, I talked to David O'Reilly, and I said, "Hey, David, I'm thinking of trying my hand at this year. You know, any chance you can sell me a little excess of what you're bringing in?" And he was great. You know, they. Um, They sloughed off some of their fruit for me. The fruit was, it was beautiful. They were really great vineyards that I worked with. Um, So again, you know, you gotta start with good fruit or it's hard to make good wine. It's a terrible platitude that got to not say anymore, but it's true. Um, So I think for me it was really learning how to manage the stress of it, Um, because again, the fruit was beautiful. The ferments were all really healthy. I had this great support network um but it's one thing to work for somebody else's winery where yes you're responsible for not screwing up the wine which is its own stress but when it's your finances on the line it's um it has a whole other dynamic um, that i had to figure out that year mm-hmm. um yeah there, and again it was such an easy vintage there were no From the production side, no big snafus that I had to deal with, Um, and then of course, once it was bottled, I had to figure out how to sell it, which I had done sales in tasting rooms, but the whole cold calling, breaking into an industry, or breaking into a market with a lot of other wines, that was a learning experience as well.
1: Talk about that in just a second because I'm really curious about that. But let's go back. I'm curious when you started, mm-hmm. you had to come up with everything. So you had to come up with what your business philosophy was going to be, your name, your logo, uh, where you were going to make your wine. Tell me, tell
0: me about the process of of kind of checking all those boxes for the early vintage. Um, I guess there was that learning curve as well. You know, coming up with a, a name, coming up with the branding, coming up with you know, the packaging was way more work way more stressful than I thought it was gonna be. But as I got into it and as I talked to more people and spent more time uh, you know, working behind the bar, selling other people's wines and paying more attention, uh, really became clear how important all of that is. Because uh, with all that wine out there, if your wine doesn't stand out, whether it's the name or the label on the shelf, you know, it's not gonna sell. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how good it is, it's gotta be, um, there's gotta be a driver to get people to grab it off the shelf. Um, so, you know, kind of like with making wine, I came up with the name Jackalope, and I had a good, what I thought was a good story behind it, but it's also a rabbit with antlers, and I had a lot of people say, never put an animal on your label. Never, never put critters on your label. So there was a hesitation with that as well. It's like, is this name gonna take off? Is, are people gonna look at this? You know, not take the wine seriously and just kind of think I'm a fool. Maybe they did, but they kept it to themselves. Um, so, that was a challenge, and I forgot the first part of your question.
1: Uh, well, I'm just sort of curious with the whole like you had to just, you had a story behind your wine. The uh-huh. you story behind your wine.
0: Uh, so, so why jackalope, and, and how did you make that work as as a as a process and a philosophy? That's right, and a philosophy about the wine. So, you know, going into making wine, you know, I had people around me that were making wine in a particular style. Um, you know, again, the people the people around you kind of form who you are in a way. Mm -hmm. So I came in with a particular philosophy about what I wanted to do, but it was really uninformed. I mean, again, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing, so, and I think every year I sort of adjust what I'm doing and how I'm doing it in a way. It's kind of fine tuning, you know, kind of like my approach to uh, having work and what I'm doing with my life, you know. Am I going to make wine for the rest of my life? I have no idea. I love it right now. If I don't love it in five to ten years, will I keep doing it? Probably not. I, you know, maybe I'll jump to something else. And I think the wine is kind of the same, kind of in terms of style, but also just my approach to, to how I'm doing it and what I want to do. It's you know, it's it's one thing to come in. This is what I want to do. I'm going to make it like this. I'm going to sell to these people, um, which is also funny. Going, you know, first vintage, I only want to sell to the right people. But not having any idea what that even means, and um, people that have the money and want to buy it, mm-hmm. those yeah. are the right people. So I, I kind of adjust every year, you know. I see what works the year before, I see what I liked making or what I didn't like making, see what sells well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my decisions now are definitely more uh, I'm considering the business side more, way more than at the beginning, where it was pure philosophy to start off with, and philosophies are great, but like everyone told me, you know, making wine's easy, it's selling that's the hard part, mm-hmm. and if you're making a wine no one wants to buy, you know, it's great if you love it, but kind of what's the point, like you're not going to stay in business. Um, anyway, rambling, that's what winemakers do. Um, that's
1: what we're here for, here for
0: the rambling. So Jackalope, um, I grew up in Chicago. I had a cousin in Nebraska, and he was, I think, about 25 years older than I was. And, you know, I'm from the Midwest, so sarcasm is kind of how we talk. We just mess with each other. It's it's how you show affection. Um, so growing up, he would send me postcards. He'd send me letters about lobes. He'd come to visit. He'd say, you've got to come out, come out to Omaha. We're going to go find these lobes." Like, here's a postcard. I told you it was real. <laughs> so basically, he just messed with me. Uh, when I was a kid, and I'm sure I believed him. I mean, they are real, Um, but I probably believed everything he fed me. He was just, he was our closest relative. It was just something that he and I bonded over, Um, but he ended up passing away when I was in eighth grade. So, you know, that kind of solidified a few things in my mind, so it stuck with me uh, after that. Jump forward a few years after I graduated university, I moved to Denver, I worked as an engineer uh decided i needed to quit that life after a while uh, so when i did i got a big jackalope tattoo so it's just this image it's just this uh thing that's kind of been with me at these mm-hmm. m- kind of pivotal changes in my life so when i started the brand i figured well you know it, it's got this meaning for me um i think it would look good on a label i think um, so i ended up finding a graphic designer who has done Uh, Really great work for me, she's in all my labels, she did my logo. Um, So she took this silly thing and made it look not too silly, which was kind of what I wanted. Um, So, you know, initially the name came from kind of that background, you know, it was in a way sort of an homage to my cousin Ray, Um, but it was just also this image that had meaning for me. A few years into the brand now, you know, I want people to take my wine seriously enough but it's also wine it should be fun I want people to you know enjoy drinking it and I don't know I try not to take myself too seriously so I, I'm trying to walk that line between serious enough but also playful and I feel like a jackalope kind of does that where it's yeah some of the you know some of the labels look more serious than others they look they look good but it's also just a jackalope which is ridiculous <laughs> um, so now for me it's just that it's that um, it's walking that line between playful and serious that I'm trying to do with the wines and the business. And you mentioned sales, so tell me about sales,
1: especially starting off new brand, trying to make it. Trying to make it. What do you do to get sh- shelf space? What do you do to get w- your I wine bag? You I beg.
0: Sales? Um, you know, I think I was lucky in that I'd worked in tasting rooms, so I'd had some, I'd had that experience doing sales that way. I'd done farmers markets, which is, you know, not cold calling, but. Definitely more aggressive than sitting in a winery waiting for people to come to you Um, So I had a little bit of that background, you know, it's terrifying that first vintage Because first of all you're cold calling so you're going to, to meet people that you've probably never met before and You're trying to sell them on this product that you've put so much of yourself into and at least for me, those first couple of vintages, my skin wasn't very thick. It's, you know, this is me, this is me in this bottle. And if you don't like it, that's you saying you don't like me. Um, so it's, it's scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody likes hearing no, and you know, sales, you hear that a lot. You hear no, you, people don't meet with you. I mean, and having been on the sales side, I understand that wine buyers don't always have the time. And with so many brands out there, they just don't have the capacity or the bandwidth to meet with everybody all the time. Uh, I think I was fortunate being at the Southeast Wine Collective because a lot of people in town knew about it. They knew Kate and Tom, so that was kind of an in-the-door there. Uh, working in the bar, I got to meet a lot of industry people that would come in. So that at least gave me a foothold to to start off with seeing some people that I knew, even if it was just... Um, just famili- familiarly. Uh, so it wasn't, yeah, but it's tough. I mean, sales is tough. <laughs> but I think having grown up uh, a middle child in a Catholic family in the Midwest, I think I'm built for that sort of abuse. Um, and again, nothing against wine buyers or the people that are on the buying side. It's, it's a tough place to be, and there's a lot of us out there harassing them and trying to get their time, but it's—I it, mean—it's not an easy thing to do. So I feel lucky that I seem to have the personality to take that abuse. What was the first
1: big break for you? Was there—was there a moment that you thought, "This is great! I've I finally kind of—I've sold some wine at, 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 a, at a big enough uh, quantity that it made a dent."
0: I was talking to somebody recently, and I'm trying to remember who that was. Uh, oh, it's my friend. out at the wine cellar and she told me she said I am an overnight success after ten years because I'm a ten-year overnight success and that made a lot of sense to me you know I don't feel like my brand is flashy I don't feel like I'm a flashy person you know I haven't really tried to chase a lot of um, in the way of PR or any of that It's it's not my style so I I've had big purchases here and there, but I feel like it's been more of a slow build. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in the last year or two, I feel like things have kind of turned a corner to where I've been approached by distributors, more and more distributors outside of Oregon. Um, I feel like there's a little more recognition from people I don't know, Mm -hmm. which still trips me out when I get an email or somebody orders wine through the website. Like, I don't have any idea who you are. You don't know my friends awesome. Um, so it's been kind of a slow build. You know, uh, Cellar 503 is a wine club based out of the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie's been awesome, and she has used me a few times, and I think that, to me, that was great. It's somebody who was starting her wine club, wanted to use my wines, believed in me and my wines enough um, to push them that way. And I hesitate going down these paths because there are a lot of people around town that have been really good supporters that I don't want to leave anybody out inevitably I will but I, I don't feel like there's been any like one moment or one incident that said okay I've made it because I think you get a big sale or you you know send a big shipment to a distributor and it's like cool that wine's gone I still have all the rest of it in my warehouse I need to keep moving um, so for yeah so for me it's just the it's it's more of a slow burn if that makes sense mm-hmm. you talked about thin skin at the
1: beginning and, and feeling like you're Putting yourself out there. Does it? Do you still feel that way? This many years in, do you
0: still feel like it's a rejection of your wine is a rejection of you? No. I mean, sure. There's every time. There's times now and then that um, I feel less pleased about somebody's response. <laughs> and I think at this point now, it's if it's more um, industry people or reviewers or whoever that d- don't love the wine. It's like, oh, why not? Why not? But you know, just in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done a lot of demos at wine shops and grocery stores and events, and you hear a lot of stuff from people, not always, they don't intend to insult you, but there's just a way people have of saying things that, um, you either get that thicker skin or you just don't do them anymore. And people love to say, oh, this wine's actually not too bad. (laughs) cool, thanks. Um, I know you didn't mean that as a bad thing, but it sounds terrible. Um, So just stuff like that, and you know, Eight years in, I've, you know, I've heard a lot of that, so it's like okay. And I realize, you know, my wines aren't for everybody. Not everyone's gonna like them, and that's totally fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to make. I would love everyone to be a customer, obviously, but I know that's not gonna be the case. So I, I I'm pretty good now at just recognizing that just because one person doesn't like it or one group of people don't like it doesn't mean the wines are bad. Mm-hmm. Just not to their style. Mm-hmm.
1: Tell me about your winemaking philosophy and 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 what you try
0: to what you want people to get out of a bottle of, of Jackalope wine. I mean, I want them to drink a bottle and want to buy another one. Um, you know, at this point, I want the wines to be fun. I want them to be solid. You know, I want I want people to know they can pick up a bottle of my wine and know even if they don't, if it's not their style, um, feel that they know it's good, that what's coming out of it is a well-made wine, mm-hmm. hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned before, you know, it's. I start off with these huge ideas of what I wanted to do, all based off of, I don't even remember what, but now, you know, some of the decisions are made more based on what is good for the business, um, and as I'm moving more and more into distribution, where I'm not doing all of my sales anymore, you know, it's not me and my personality necessarily that are gonna be selling the wines, it's somebody else that's gotta do it. Mm-hmm. So if the wines aren't good, if it's not something, you know, these sales people, sales people can stand behind, you know, it's, it's not gonna work. Um, so, and, so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm looking at what, which of my wines have sold well, and using that to sort of inform, the kinds of blends I'm putting together, uh, and just how I'm making the wines. I want them to be playful and fun, but also well made. How's that for a non-answer? That's a great. That's a great answer. All, right.
1: okay. all, all and nothing. Uh, <laughs> so you started. You started with Pinot and, and Cab Franc as, the, mm-hmm. as what you wanted
0: to is what you wanted to make. And I'm curious why those two to start with. I just love Cab Franc. Uh, you know. Everyone asks you, know, what was the wine that turned you on to wine? What made you want to do this? And, you know, again, my background is drinking crappy wine because it was cheap. Um, my mom was Italian, but not a wine drinker, so despite having that, uh, that background, we never drank wine in the house as kids, not that you should <laughs> drink as a kid. Um, so it was more the domestic wines that kind of grabbed me first you know working for Owen row they made some franc. they had one i think it was the 2008 slide mountain franc that i had and i was like holy crap this is delicious um and that kind of sort of brought me into that realm of okay wine is can be more than just this thing that'll get you drunk or tipsy um drink responsibly um so that kind of started it, and it, you know I, I love their wines, I love their Cap Franc, and it, that kind of got me looking into more of those wines. And f- to me, Cap Franc, it's, it's kind of like this gritty, not farmhouse wine, but it's, um, it's kind of uh, kinda like the, nah, not the blue color wine. It's like Pinot Noir is beautiful and elegant and lovely. Um, this this very refined, delicate creature. Cap Franc is not. Um, to me, Cap Franc is more that, you know, I'm drinking a Ham's out behind the winery at the end of a long day. Just kind of a, uh, we'll say not ethereal, which Pinot Noir will say can be. So it's like this different creature um, that I, d- I really like working with. And, you know, I think in the last, a few years, more and more people I'm hearing say, "Oh, I love Cap Franc." More people know what it is, and they don't just assume it's Cab Sauv. Um, so there's kind of that sort of underdoggy quality to it mm-hmm. that I kind of dig. Um, you know, from a business business perspective too. I mean, there's so much Pinot Noir that even breaking into it, you know, eight years ago, there's still so much Pinot Noir that. That is, it's a big battle to wage. Um, which isn't to say we have too much Pinot Noir that people should make less. I mean, sales is hard, so to break into something that there's already quite a bit of, with already a lot of established names of, um, it's tough. Whereas Cab Franc, there still isn't, in my opinion, enough of it getting put out there. So coming in with something a little bit off kilter, less pushed, made sales a little bit easier. And it, I mean, it helped that it's a grape that I love. And as you've grown, what have you what have you added to your roster as you're get, getting up towards two thousand cases? Too many. <laughs> uh, the, the problem is we only get to do this once a year, this winemaking thing. And you know, if you look over the course of your life, you only get to do it not that many times. Um, so almost every year, I've had a grape, a new grape that I've added in because it's available. Somebody's <laughs> talked me into it, and I'm. It's really hard to say no in the middle of harvest because you're not really thinking long-term. Um, it's like, sure, I'll buy those grapes, and then the bills come. Two months later, you're like, oh, that's why I should have said no. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've added quite a bit. That second vintage, I added Viognier, mm-hmm. um, which I've been making ever since. And then over time, I've added Sauv, Grenache, Syrah, this year, I brought in some um, Albarino. I made six whole gallons of Zweigelt last year. Um, I think that's all I work with. And it, you know, yeah, I've just added too many. And I've added more and more vineyards. You know, I don't own any vineyards, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm buying all my fruit. A lot from Southern Oregon, Willamette Valley, obviously. Um, and I've been kind of dabbling more and more with Washington just to especially with Cap Franc, just to compare. Like mm-hmm. how, do the two, how are the two different? Um, so I've, I don't know how many vineyards I'm working with, 10 maybe, which is fun. I mean, it's great to have that accessibility. It's great to have that, ver- the, that variety so close mm-hmm. to here, especially now being in Portland, everything's not too far away. Um, yeah, this stable has too many different too many skews, <laughs> and of course some some uncommon
1: grapes there in terms of sales, in terms of recognition. Mm-hmm. So tell me about uh, educating consumers in things like Albarino and, and Grenache that maybe they're not familiar with.
0: So that is one of the parts of sales that I, I really kind of enjoy. Um, you know, there's a lot about winemaking that people don't know. Uh, you know, having worked at the Southeast Wine Collective, it, it was a, it was great for that because you're in the middle of the winery when you're sitting in the wine bar. So me, behind the bar, I can talk to people about what the process is, about how wine is made, and give people more of an appreciation for what it takes to make a bottle of wine. Um, you know, in terms of making some weird varieties to teach people about, um, you know, I'm, I make rosé, which, Not everyone knows that there are different ways to make rosé, so it's fun to talk about that. Um, I make a white Cabernet Franc, which the first year I made it, it was just an accident. I mean, it was rosé, but all the color dropped out before bottling. Um, So, yeah. I've had a couple times very early on where things didn't go the way I wanted them to or expected them to, and there was a way to force them back into what I wanted them to be that would have made them lesser wines mm-hmm. so I learned early on just kind of sort of followed the lead of what the wines are doing um, and that we'll, could possibly make a better wine so that with that white cap franc yeah I just left it as what it was because um, it was better than what I was trying to make it into and I've kept making it since then I don't make a lot of it uh, and I'm you know I was not the first person to do it So I'm following on some on the heels of some good folks, Um, but it's fun to talk about that wine to people because, like, how do you make a white wine out of Cabernet Franc? Is that a different grape? What's happening here? So that one I really enjoy pouring for people and you know trying to tell them, well, this is how wine is made. This is where the color comes from. This is how I can make a white wine with a black Mm -hmm. grape. Um, You know, other things like the uh, the different weather we've had. The last couple of years, you know, with uh, the wildfires,
1: mm-hmm.
0: have added kind of a different uh, challenge, shall we say, mm-hmm. to making the wines. Um, you know, twenty seventeen was a pretty rough year across, the, you know, up and down the West Coast. And you know, one of my wines that I'm currently selling does have um, some smoke influence. Uh, what I'm now calling air terroir, because it sounds much nicer, and it is terroir. I mean, it was a smoky air, but you know, to, to Pour that wine for people, for me is, I love pouring that wine because first, it shows people what, like really what the effect of the environment has mm-hmm. on the wines. Um, you know, they don't, didn't know that you could get smoke in a wine from these fires. Um, so that's been kind of fun to show people. Mm-hmm. So, um
1: I was going to ask you next I had this great question in my head and, and I know, just went on for too long good. no it's all, it's all good uh, it's okay we'll just change course uh, you mentioned uh, sort of uh, looking ahead that if you if you didn't love winemaking you would not necessarily keep making wine mm-hmm. so tell me where you where you see yourself and, and, and Jackalope maybe 10 years in oh the future. god
0: where are you going to be in five years yeah, questions I, oh, I love yeah. corporate America <laughs> I don't have to answer that question anymore
1: if you were a tree what kind of tree would you be no I'm just uh, I don't know I don't know yeah, A, I know. An we, Aspen tree.
0: because everyone loves the aspens. It's true. Um, it's hard to
1: ask people to look ahead, but we have to do it anyway. You know. Yeah. So. All right. All
0: right. Um, you know that my idea of where I'm going to be down the road changes every year. You know, right now where I'm sitting production wise, it's enough that I can do most of the work myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I like doing production work. Um, I like the. I like. I like doing that work. That's why I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, If I grow too big, then somebody else is either doing a lot of it, all of it, more of it. Um, so I'm not doing as much of it. And to me, if I'm not doing the work that I want to be doing, you know, why am I doing it? Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's going to come a time when my body's not going to want to do all that labor and I will have to give off more of it to somebody else. I'm not at that point yet. So maybe when that point comes, I change some of my decisions, but I like being at the size where I can do most of the work. Uh, you know, if I start selling the wines out really quickly, then maybe I jump up production more so, but, I, yeah, I, I like where I'm at right now, because I'm still plugged into all the parts. You know, talking to the vineyards, working with the facilities I'm in um, and doing the work, and still doing a lot of the sales. Mm-hmm. I, I like those aspects of it. And maybe in five years, I realize I don't want to work this much all the time uh, and you know, delegate more to somebody else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 10 years, I'm that old, I'll be that old. Imagine in 10 years, I won't want to do as much of the work. And then maybe I grow, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. To be determined. I can't. Yeah, to be determined. <laughs> uh, not sitting in the cubicle. Mm-hmm. That's where I want to be in ten years. Mm-hmm.
1: Fair enough. Uh, mentioned. You were talking about vineyard sources earlier, and how you, as you've grown in production, you've grown in vineyard sources. Tell me about finding vineyard sources and, and what you're looking
0: for with grapes. I and mean, part of what I like about this industry is um, how close knit it is, and how there aren't too many secrets that people are holding that i've come across so most of the vineyards i work with i know about um, either because i've gotten to know the person that that owns them or a friend of mine has introduced me to the vineyard Mm -hmm. um i don't think there. yeah i think there's only one vineyard that didn't come to me through a friend Mm -hmm. and that was somebody that came into a tasting room that i was working in and we got to talking and Eventually she offered me fruit, like, okay, fine, I'll buy some, <laughs> and it worked out great. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of, it's relationships. Um, and I've been working with a lot of the same vineyards for years, so you get to know the people that own them. Um, you know, not being, of, like I'm not a vineyard worker, I haven't done that much work in the vineyards, there's so much I don't know. So the people I work with, I need to really trust. Um, I mean, they need to trust me as well. It's a very symbiotic relationship. So I like working with the same people over and over. You know, we just get to know each other. I get to know the vineyards better. Um, It just grows those relationships that I get such a kick out of in this industry. I think it's very relationship-based and I like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in terms of what I'm looking for, you know, good fruit, um, I'm looking at the farming practices as well. You know, I'm working with vineyards that are organic, some that are live certified, some that are going organic, some that are farmed organically but are not certified. Um, yeah, you know, I've got one or two vineyards that are farmed more commercially, and we're discussing how to move forward from there to something a little more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we should try not to destroy our planet and the earth. So, you know, I want to work with vineyards that are farming less destructively. Um, but again, you know, I'm not. I'm not a farmer, so I'm not gonna come in and tell a vineyard owner, like, hey, this is what you gotta do. I want you to farm this way, because I don't have the knowledge base from which to really say that. So it's more, this is what I would like to see. How do we move down that path? And you know, one of the vineyards I've been working with for a number of years, she is going organic. And the conversation we had was, she said, yeah, I can do this, but at least initially, I'm gonna have to raise the price of the fruit you know, so that I can do that, and I'm like, yeah, of course, and I will support you in that, because that's the direction I want you to go. So, you know, I'm not gonna make dem- demands, but not provide the support needed mm-hmm. to go down that road. You were working with wine
1: consumers pretty early on mm-hmm. in, in the industry. Uh, how have you seen consumer demands change since you've been well, People wine?
0: love rosé now. <laughs> uh, when I started, nobody wanted to touch rosé. Um, yeah, I remember, yeah, I could get people to try rosé for anything, you know, 10 years ago and now everyone wants a rosé. Who would drink pink wine? Right. right. <laughs> uh, so that's been pretty fun. It, it, it's sort of hard to generalize that, just given the different venues I've worked in and um, I guess the different consumers and I've seen in the products I was selling. I feel like people are really open and maybe they always have been but i feel like there's a little more openness now for people to try different things um whether it's a new grape a new style or just something that's out of their wheelhouse Mm -hmm. i feel like people are pretty well they feel very experimental now which is great Mm -hmm. especially you know i'm not doing anything that crazy but with a couple of different styled wines and with friends that are making some really weird but really great stuff. Um, it's nice that people are open to trying new stuff mm-hmm. and open to learning about these different processes and different grapes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I haven't really noticed any other huge trends. I should which probably see? says I'm not looking enough at the industry reports and should know more <laughs> what, how the trends are changing.
1: Are you seeing more demand for organic? Or are you seeing more demand for things like biodynamic or, or sustainably farmed?
0: Yes. I think so. But that's also a product, I think, of the circles I'm in in terms, you know, Mm -hmm. winemakers but also a lot of the, I mean, we're in Portland, yes, everyone's going to want organic and biodynamic and natural, um, just kind of what we do here. You know, going to some of my market visits outside of Portland, it's not, I don't hear it as much. it's funny how people with food really want organic and are willing to pay more for it, but with wines, it still sort of feels more peripheral, where some people are into it and only want organic, and other people are like, yeah, it doesn't matter, it's just alcohol. Um, so it, yeah, I think there's definitely more conversation around how wines are made, what goes into them, um, and what people are, are buying and what they want. But again, that's me in my Portland bubble, Mm -hmm. which doesn't speak for everywhere else. And I, you know, being the person doing my own sales, I can make these weirder, quirky wines that maybe rely a little heavier on using organic vineyards and using these more um, less invasive winemaking techniques. Because I'm in the market and I'm selling the wines. Um, Not that I'm going to move away from any of that, but as I go more into distribution, there's also that thought of what is going to sell you know i'm in the missouri market you know what are they going to be looking for are they going to want this a weird albarino or a white cap franc or a, something unfamiliar to them or is it a better business decision to make more pinot for something like that um, it's always shifting trying to keep up with the consumers is tough mm-hmm. um,
1: about the industry uh, in general? Uh, w- when you entered it uh, to now, what, what are the changes you've seen, uh, n- noticed? Uh, wh- where does it stand now versus where it
0: was when you entered? Well, there's more of us. You know, I think the growth over the last 10 years in Oregon has been huge. I won't spit out any numbers because I'd be mostly making them up, but I know uh, the number of wineries has skyrocketed. Uh, You know, I think maybe, again, given my circles, I think part of that might be places like this and the other places I've made wine, where a lot of us, we don't need, haven't needed to buy a facility and all the equipment. You know, we can rent space in somebody else's property, which makes it, I think, much more accessible to get into doing this. Um, If it weren't for the shared facilities I've been in, I couldn't be doing this. I don't have partners, I don't have investors, I don't have the finances to do this without being in somebody else's space. Um, and it just seems like that is a more common thing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, it didn't seem like too many people had shared spaces and you know, just looking at the internet the last couple of years, more and more people are saying, hey, I've got a little bit of extra room. If you're looking for a space to make a little bit of wine, I've got that. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be more, uh, more of that sharing of space happening you know it it, from early on it seemed like a very collaborative industry and I don't feel like that's changed it seems like that is has maintained Mm -hmm. as we've grown you you know I I hear people grouse every now and then about outside wineries coming in and buying up properties and um, from my standpoint I haven't seen any negative changes from that you know fruit prices have gone up but that's for a lot of different reasons. I still feel like it's a very collegial, very collaborative industry. Um, I haven't seen that fall off, which hopefully it never does. Um, yeah, I mean the Oregon wine industry just to me feels, it's just very approachable to use it. A, a, um, a word I don't always love. But you know, I feel like we're very um, kind of down to earth people come in from around the country, like tourism I think has gone up quite a bit, people coming out here for wine and food and beer and all the stuff, but um, I feel like we're that approachable state where I don't think people come here expecting to go to a winery that they're gonna feel out of place or look down upon if they don't know enough. Um, I mean, I know things have changed and tasting fees have gone up and you know, a lot has changed, but I, I, I feel like that attitude is still there. Of, we just love wine. We just want to drink wine. We want you to come in and buy our wine and drink it too, and just enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, that the stereotype that a lot of people have, where you know, if we're in the wine industry, we're looking down on you mm-hmm. if you're not at our same level. Like, I just don't feel that attitude mm-hmm.
1: here. Um, just swimming in gold yeah. coins, like Scrooge
0: McDuck, up here in your in your I tower. I mean, we are. <laughs> But it's just the little chocolate gold coin, so it just gets messy. What about as you look ahead for Oregon wine, uh, say a,
1: a decade down the road? What what are what are you hoping for? Maybe what are you concerned about as you look ahead for the industry?
0: I hope we maintain like that um, that attitude that I was just mentioning. Mm-hmm. Like I hope we hang on to that idea of this being a collaborative industry where we're here to help each other out. We're here to work together. You know, we're pushing brand Oregon. Um, it's interesting having friends in Southern Oregon and talking to them about how they feel perceived as a market versus the Willamette Valley. And there's, I think, still a divide where people think Oregon, they think Willamette Valley. They don't necessarily think Applegate or Rogue Valley. And mm-hmm. You know, my hope is that there becomes more parody there. That they are seen on that same level because there's some beautiful wines and beautiful fruit coming out of southern oregon coming out of the gorge coming out of eastern oregon um you know i would like not to denigrate anybody that's come before me or anything that's been done but it would be nice for the greater picture of oregon to be oregon not just the willamette valley um, not just pinot noir again i love pinot noir Nothing against it, I don't want that to go away, but we have so many different kinds of grapes that are growing in Oregon. There's so much happening here. Um, to me, Oregon feels like such a um, an experimental state in some ways, just in the way people are making wines, what they're doing with them. Um, there's a lot of out of the box, out of that stereotype, stereotypical box thinking. So I think there's a lot of fun wines being made. And um, yeah, I would like Oregon to be kind of be known mm-hmm. For that bigger picture without any loss to, you know, that Satan the Pinot Noir has or the Willamette has. Um, you know, just it's just like bring everybody up,
1: mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you're concerned about? Is there any any issues on the
0: horizon that worry you? Uh mm-hmm. Are we speaking you know, in the greater scheme of things or wine specifically? Well, wow.
1: yeah, uh, wine specifically, okay. but okay. As, maybe as it pertains to the greater scheme of things.
0: It'll be interesting to see how the market grows. Um, you know, just in the last few years, you know, with all, all these new wineries coming online, and honestly, some days it feels like I see a new label in the stores every month. And talking to some of my friends who are buyers, you know, talking to them about how many more people are coming in to try to to sell their wine. um, I don't know where that's gonna go. I don't, you know, we're definitely not saturated. Uh, What our capacity is, it'll be interesting to see Mm -hmm. what we have. Um, You know, I think as we branch out more from just Pinot Noir, I think that will help uh, more people stay competitive. Mm -hmm. I mean, my concern is always sales and staying relevant, staying current, um, staying in front of the buyers, which is, again, partly why I like to do my own sales because being the being the winery, you know, it, it has a little more pull than, you know, than what my distributors may have. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. So staying relevant because otherwise the wines don't sell and it's hard to stay in business if the wines don't sell. Um, you know, you, I think. The concern, too, is, you know, I, I would like the winery or the industry to stay so collaborative. I mean, that's kind of what sucked me in in the first place is, you know, the sharing of equipment and ideas and people and just this idea that, you know, yeah, we're we're in competition theoretically, but we're also here to help each other out because that just makes everybody better. So hopefully that stays. Um, you know. Ten years down the road, what's the climate going to be like? You know, it seems like things are getting warmer. Um, changes are happening. Uh, so there's concern with that, you know, how that's going to change things. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So if someone were to come to you today and say they wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom be?
0: I'd probably pass on this, a lot of the same wisdom that I got when I like enter the industry in general, or enter as a wine ma- as a winemaker. However, however you want however to, you want to you answer, answer that. that. Um, I mean, if they just want to enter the industry as a salesperson or a tasting room, or whatever, or a production hand, like do it. Like it's fun. It's it's a great community to be a part of. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's you know, if you're coming in thinking you're going to make a ton of money and get rich maybe rethink that a little bit. Um, you know, It's definitely, it's a great lifestyle, but it's a lot of hustle. Um, you know, as a winemaker, you know, what everyone told me was, it's gonna cost way more than you think it's going to, and um, sales is the hardest part. But it's, to me, it's been very gratifying, very rewarding to do this. Um, and I try not to be too cynical, too often. So I wouldn't, yeah. Just offer my support, basically, to those folks that are trying to get into it. Because that's what I mean, that's what I've had so much support over the years from so many people. Um, somebody wants to, to jump into the industry, you know, I'll do what I can to help out. Have you had people come to you? Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah. Have they actually entered the industry? Some have. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I mean, at my scale, there's only so much I can do. I mean, I've had people ask to work for me from out of town, from out of country, which is kind of fascinating. I'd love to give you a job, but I don't have the need for it. So um, yeah, seems like more people, yeah, a lot of people trying to get here to work, It's mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. Any questions?
1: So the questions that I have for you. Is Beautiful. there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? I don't think so. Covered at all? All right. Open microphone. I mean, you can say whatever you want. Buy Jackalope <laughs> wine. All of it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. We appreciate your time today and sharing your stories with us. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Cool. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.